and welcome to NeuroCurious, a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture, not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, joined by co-hosts Jamie Jones and Peggy Schaefer, and today we are once again joined by our friend Laura Flores Shaw, educator and Montessori expert extraordinaire, to dive into concepts around executive function, as we have threatened to do previously, and as parents, we know it's important to follow through on threats. Yes. There you go. So, um, and we're also continuing our um, uh, recording technological experimentation, and since we had so many problems having multiple microphones last time, we're just using one for all of us today. Mm-hmm. Um, and next time, we'll do something different, too. <laughs> so Why not? Because we're all about change here. That's right. Uh, so welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, first, we thought we'd have a bit of housekeeping. Um, So our last episode, we talked about um, neurologic music therapy application. Um, And it was very excellent. If you haven't listened to it, you should go back and do so. Um, One of our listeners uh, wrote in to ask a question about a term that uh, Peggy used, uh, facilitated communication. And noted that um, that that term facilitated communication actually has a sort of a hot button quality to it because um, there there is a history within assisted communication of a particular kind of facilitation that was sort of operating kind of like a Ouija board where mm-hmm. a person who was supposedly facilitating was actually sort of holding the person's hand and sort of moving it for them and lots of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, can and did emanate from that. So yeah. we thought we'd take a moment and kind of clarify what different ways of, of talking about augmented and supported communication are. Um, Darlene Hansen is going to come in and, and talk in depth about these things, but we thought we'd give Peggy a few moments to sort of clarify what, when she talks about facilitated communication, what that is. Yeah. So back to that issue of Controversy. I'm the first to agree that there are quality control issues at play. So yeah. there needs to be some strict training, and, and there are rules or you know training in place. So mm-hmm. um, the best practice is really um, a tool that we use is the language ladder, and the language ladder is an uh, a tool that basically builds on being able to a predict the movement or feel where the movement is going based on where your support is, but also ultimately helping to guide the process in a trustful relationship, making sure that we're supporting the person to say what they want to say. It's not about the facilitator. It's about who's being facilitated. It's not supposed to be about the facilitator. Correct. Best practices. Correct. Um, But ultimately, it buys into this idea that ASD is a movement disorder, right? Right. Uh, Which we kind of talked about last week, or we talked a lot about actually last time. Um, So the movement that we're doing is actually to support proprioceptive um, input. So the movement is actually against the forward movement. So we're not going with the arm. We're pushing against the flow to create a rhythm, but also increase the proprioceptive um, pieces of it and stabilization of the muscles. Right. And so it's not holding onto a person's hand in, in your no. in, in how you work. It's right. stabilizing at the scapula as much or as the possible. Shoulder. Correct. Yeah. Um, ideally, um, we start least to most strategy. For some individuals, when their motor system is severely impacted, we do have to start lower down in the arm, but best practices is always fading. Right. So we want to fade as quickly as possible back and back and back and back. Another right. piece that I wanted to bring up is the importance of multiple communication partners. Yeah. Um, this is a very critical piece in facilitation because it is not about only typing with one person. Right. 
It is about having someone at school, someone at home, having friends, having family, having therapists, um, as many communication partners as possible to help to generalize and carry over the skill. Right. Um, because if it's happening with one person and then it happens with another, now we've got reliability. And right. Yeah. Well, and That's I think to me the, the most important piece to be kept in mind in terms of looking at, at, at facilitated or augmented mm-hmm. communication is that you're you're not moving with the person, you're moving, you're pulling against them. Right, and we're following their rhythm. So right. back to this rhythm piece, you know, mm-hmm. um, this is why rhythm is so great in priming these movements because it actually, in facilitation, they talk a lot about getting in a rhythm with the person you're typing with and supporting because it is this dance that you have to get into, but it's about the facilitator matching the rhythm of the individual. Right. Um, so, uh, you know... I hope that kind of hits on it a little bit and that we're, yeah. we're about the stabilization of the sensory motor system. Right. And then in addition to that, which we're going to kind of, now we're going to fade into our next topic, is also how we can support the working memory issues that come with ASD through typing as well. Right. Because um, that is rhythm and movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and what a, a great way to sort of segue into talking about executive function. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is, I mean, it's, executive function is something that everybody talks about, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the buzzword, um, whether you're looking at, at research or looking at clinical work, you're looking at education, everybody's talking about executive function and how do we improve executive function? And mm-hmm. we, but, but there's not sufficiently common language about what executive function actually is, and most of it is still um, based upon, a again, a corticocentric view of function where it's all cortex and it's all top-down voluntarily driven processes and doesn't function enough on more um, autonomic nervous system uh, automatic kind of processes uh, other than those that people again attribute to the cortex. Um, So why don't we start with just kind of talking a little bit about what executive function is like Mm -hmm. how how can how do we define it when we use it well I, I for me I mean the way that I was taught in my schooling is more and you guys can speak to this in terms of those specifics but reasoning problem solving decision making tend to be more of the right. big the big ones mm-hmm. that get thrown out there organization uh-huh. planning, planning sequencing right memory uh-huh mm-hmm. all those issues um I don't know is that accurate to what you're Education. Well, well, yeah. I mean, sure. I think. I mean, part of the the, the thing is is that that uh, executive function is like pornography, mm. and that you know it when you see it. Right. 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 So, um, <laughs> you know, I've never heard it put that way, Deborah. I'm going to start using um, that in my talk. That's going to get some listeners. <laughs> okay. Um, but so, and one of the reasons, so so Len Koziol and Dana Chitapil and I um, wrote an article. Um, a number of years back called um, From Movement to Thought, mm-hmm. Executive Function, Embodied Cognition, and the Cerebellum. I don't remember when it came out. Oh, 2011. So um, one of the things that, that we focused on in this was trying to come up with ways of conceptualizing executive function that are one more consistent with current, current day mm-hmm. understanding of um, functional neuroanatomy, um, but also has application to everyday life. Like, how do we, how do we use it? So mm-hmm. um, the... And, and when Jamie and I do talks now, um, we sort of go with the definition of executive function that is um, taken from Miller, mm-hmm. and it is um, the functions and organization. Organi- I can't even talk today. 
the functions an organism employs to act independently in its own best interest as a whole at any point in time for the purpose of survival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's broad. It is. That, that yes. is broad. And I, when I teach executive function to my students, I make it even broader and say how we get stuff done independently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's like how we, you know, initiate and get things done on our own. On our own. Without our parents doing it for us. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and so, again, traditionally that gets focused on from a very corticocentric mm-hmm. point of view where we're looking at, again, de- deliberate, conscious. Um, but that's also a view of executive function assuming that only humans have it. Right, right. And if you start thinking more broadly and think about the fact that, well, actually, Squids um, have it. <laughs> lots of... Lots of creatures have executive functions that they mm-hmm. use, and if you've ever seen the, the footage of an octopus getting out of a closed right. jar, right? Um, or if you've ever you know had the terrifying experience of watching crows closely, yeah, yeah, they are um, wicked or smart. Louise yeah. Barrett uses an example of the um, the the primate who was in a zoo and would bring out the rocks, you know, every um, summer when the zoo would open and just systematically build his stack and mm-hmm. then throw them at the people. Yeah. <laughs> He's predicting what's yeah. going yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. exactly. So, um, you know, non, non-humans use tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of the things I think that's important to, to consider is how broad executive function really is. Mm-hmm. And also, um, once we move away from a, a purely cortex-driven view of it, what that means in terms of really how you can get at Adaptive function, right? How mm-hmm. do we get to, to day-to-day life and, yeah. and managing it? And I think that's a really good segue to discuss what we've previously discussed or at least brought up of the vertically organized brain. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, so take yes. it away, ladies. <laughs> so what about that vertically organized well, brain? Can I, can I just talk about how you know I was taught about the mm-hmm. brain in school, given my background? Because then mm-hmm. we can start with the corticocentric yeah. view, essentially. Right, and you so come from the very, education side of I things. Come from the, so. Yeah, I have two degrees in psychology and you know, getting my doctorate in education. And it it's still a very, we're very hung up on the fact that we have this higher level thinking as humans. And so... We think that we're the only ones that have that, and also that we're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and that that's the whole point of evolution is to evolve like our point of thinking essentially, and um, or our way of, of thinking, and so um, we we love the cortex. We think that that is the end all be all of the brain, um, and so we tend to refer also to subcortical brain structures as more as primitive right, right? The, the lizard brain I think the lizard brain is how they do talk about and, it and, and honestly and people sweet. use it in a way as to show like look i know how the brain is structured right right um and so we're taught about the brain in this very modular kind of reductionistic mechanistic way yes. and it's all about reducing the brain to these very specific um these very specific parts, these discrete parts, and then, and, you know, kind of trying to look at how they interact, but in a very, almost in a very linear type of way, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a more systemic way. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, uh, and it's always been something that's very frustrating because it's, on the one hand, neuroscience is really exciting, but when you're looking at just discrete parts and then you're saying, well, you know, this part of the brain lights up when this happens, 
that really isn't telling you anything. But we think that it's telling us something, but right. it's really not. Um, so that's kind of well, it's telling know, us something. But it's, well, it's, it's telling it's, you something, but it may not be telling us right. what it's telling what, us. We don't know what it's telling us. That's the thing. And is it, you know, um, and it's certainly not giving us any kind of an entire picture or anything like that. So, uh, so that's really a corticocentric. Uh, view of the brain. So we always talk about the executive functions. They sit in. They sit in the prefrontal cortex. That's where they live. They, that's where they, where live. they, live. they hang out. Um, they have little condo there. They so, do. Right. They do. Very little. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but the 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 vertical model of the brain. This this really flips that. So why don't you guys talk about that well, model? So the important thing to think about in terms of vertically organized systems is is that we have both voluntary um, conscious actions and, mm-hmm. and functions and we also have those that are automatic and out of conscious awareness and that these are constantly operating and that these are managed in concert by multiple areas of cortex along with um, subcortical regions mm-hmm. so the you know, thalamus basal ganglia cerebellum Etc. Okay, brainstem, and that that there are interacting networks that are constantly working together, that are operating in you know in tandem in order to make use of previous experiences, guided by reward, mm-hmm. um, and also to make adjustments to current circumstances based on um, prediction, and that those those interacting networks are constantly in play, no matter what we're doing or not doing. Um, there's even some, some thought recently, I've been looking at like default network and what the brain is doing when it's you know, quote unquote at rest. Right. And finding the brain is never at rest, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's not at rest when you're well, sleeping. Sure. All the lights yeah. turn off when you're asleep. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's at rest it rests when you're dead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah. Although even as we've <laughs> seen from the fMRI of the, right. of the, of the dead trout, That's right. Maybe not. Still, things can still light mm-hmm. up even when you're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you want to add to that, Jamie? Um, I think part of what I want to add to that is I think part of why we still do the corticocentric in school is that when you start teaching people about the brain, you have to start simplistic mm-hmm. right. because it's very complicated. Right. And it's much easier to say you have four lobes, right? You've right. got your frontal lobe, which does executive functioning. You have your temporal lobe, which does hearing. You have your occipital lobe, which does vision. None of which is incorrect, all of which is just too simplistic. Right. right. So when I teach sort of juniors and seniors, you know, I say nothing you learned as a freshman was wrong. It was just really simplistic. Right. Right. And so the truth is that everything works together in very complicated ways. And the only thing we know for sure about sort of upper levels of the brain is that they're more involved in effortful sort of conscious thought. Mm -hmm. And that subcortical structures are much more involved in doing things automatically and out of conscious awareness, but none of it works in isolation. Right. It's always right. an ongoing process. Right. Um, and the and it's not that the cortex is always it's it you know, you're always under conscious control of right. whatever. Well, you know, not if you want to get anything done. Right. right? I, mean, I mean exactly. It, so I mean part but of but that's the, kind of how we treat it. We yeah. treat it as if there is this central executive right. in the brain, right? The homunculus in the Ooh, brain that's with telling, a giant desk. That's with, <laughs> and that's directing everybody. Yeah. Directing all the other lobes. Here's what you're gonna do. 
this right. is what's going to happen right now. This is, like and that's right. And that, I mean, that's how that back back in the day when I was first learning in, in neuropsychology, that is how the the description of executive function and the, the prefrontal cortex, especially, was yes. described. Is yes. that mm-hmm. is that that's the that's the that's the boss of the brain. That's the CEO. And well, it still is. I mean, I don't even think yeah. it's that it was. I mean, yes, that's how we were taught. But I think a lot of programs are still teaching that. And yeah, it's like right. not that easy. And I think you know, I think we do need to say it's not that we're saying the cortex isn't important. Cortex is important, right? And right. Having, you know, and having a prefrontal cortex is useful. It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, um, but when people also talk about you know babies and you know toddlers and you know their prefrontal cortices I'm like well not really terribly well developed yet yeah so like I I told you I had there I watched a video of this woman who's a doctorate in public policy who was talking about how you know in utero when the baby is is kicking it's the the cortex is telling the baby how to move and actually that's that's actually (laughs) not what's happening Jamie's gotten on this podcast Cortex is developing right now, so that's not what's actually happening. But that's how corticocentric we are. Right. Well, and and again, my I have a particular love for the cerebellum. I know that's shocking to people, but um, (laughs) one of the things that's so interesting to me about um, development and the co-development of the prefrontal cortex and the cerebellum is that again, in prematurity, Mm -hmm. um, the the cerebellum is very late developing, and so. The, the structure that is often most affected by premature birth is the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. And as we yeah. said, you know, things could better inside than outside. Um, and one of the things we're finding with a, a lot of premature babies is that they, they survive and they do, you know, relatively well, but m- many of them still have executive function problems. Right. Some of them quite subtle. Um, but it's very much related to kind of trophic changes in how the cerebellum and the prefrontal cortex are co-developing yeah. mm-hmm. and, or, and, or not co-developing properly together. Well, and it's, it's like that old parable of the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are like, oh, it's, you know, little kids don't do executive functioning very well because they have underdeveloped prefrontal cortex and preemies have executive function problems. Preemies also have motor sequencing problems. Right, right, mm-hmm. and things that tend to co-occur, and one of the things I find amusing is if you watch three and four-year-olds, they don't have very good executive functioning, can't plan themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, out of a paper bag, and need their parents to do like brush your teeth, put your shoe on, like and like right, and so yeah, maybe it's their undeveloped, you know, prefrontal cortex, or maybe it's the connections right, between prefrontal and cerebellum, and maybe it's not having as many sort of models of how to do those behavior laid down yet. Right, right. Um, so in thinking about executive function, because again, cl- you know, clinically when people come to us, it's usually in relation to executive function problems they're having, right? So they're having trouble independently guiding their own behavior, mm-hmm. They are impulsive. They don't learn from previous experience. Mm-hmm. They don't plan well. Um, they are forgetful. Those kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so then, for example, you know, Jamie and I are neuropsychologists. So then we're going in and we're trying to do assessment mm-hmm. 
to figure out where things are breaking down in, in various systems and then making some suggestions of, of what to do. Well, okay, then how are we looking at and measuring executive function? When we say somebody's got executive function problems, well, is executive function how you do on the Wisconsin card sort test, mm-hmm, right, no. where you're doing matching? Right. <laughs> is no. executive function the number of digits you can recall backwards? No. <laughs> um, and, and, but, but there tends to be this very modular way of looking at it mm-hmm. to say, well, you know, so we have this executive function test that we can give you that will tell you how your executive functions are working. Right. Except that's not how it works. Right. So um, when you shift from a very cortically driven modular view to one that is more um, movement based and movement planning based and um, accommodating to changes in the environment based, then you can start thinking more actively about, well, okay, if executive function is what allows us to operate independently, in the world, then we can start thinking about how does that impact movement planning and organization. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which uh, do you think we should just briefly also describe again? I mean, we did yeah. in our last podcast, but Wolpert's, you know, um, the right. well, we're coming from that perspective of being born to move as opposed to being bo- born to think. Right. Also. Thinking thinking is a wonderful um, development that that occurred in order to help with movement, right. essentially. And um, so if you, you know, one of the things that's interesting and that, and um, used to talk about this with Maureen Dennis, may she rest in peace if I always say this, but she, it was a big loss for our field. Um, But, but we used to joke about, you know, these supposed motor free tasks that neuropsychologists (laughs) were going to be using and people will still talk about motor free tasks, right? Right. There is no motor free task. No, there is no such thing because even if you're not moving, basically what people say when, when they say motor free tasks, fine motor free. Right. 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 But you're still moving your eyes, Uh giving a verbal response. You're still, everything is motor, everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but the fact that people still think you can you know, parse that out is, is very telling in terms of how, how all of our fields are still sort of hamstrung by these, these views. Yeah, um, well, and, it's same thing with an education. I mean, I had yeah. a, a conversation with a, a colleague of mine in my, in my cohort, and she was saying, but you can think of stories in your head, and you don't, that doesn't require movement. You know, and, there, and somehow that was supposed to be, <laughs> I'm not really sure... Right, it's meant by that, but that was you know think, saying that not everything requires movement, I guess. But and I'm like, well, but if you want to tell the story, that requires movement. If you want to write it down, that requires movement. Right. Um, well, and, and, and I know, bet is the story involved movement. Right. Right. The story in your head. The story in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and the thoughts are their information moving <laughs> right. around <laughs> your brain. Right. So there's all kinds of movement going yeah. on. Yeah. There's that piece of it. That's mm-hmm. right. Um. So. So I, I think the more that we can move away from um, the, the way things have been modular, the, I think the more mm-hmm. actual um, application we'll have for, for thinking about executive function and also doing, concretely doing things with regard to executive function. So for example, mm-hmm. um, when, when we're talking about people who have um, trouble with impulse control, for example, yeah, right. And so um, 
that's if you have problems with impulse control that's going to impact everything you do basically right so mm -hmm. you're going to um, react to something in your environment without stopping to think about what previous experiences were right. because if you're impulsive it impacts your working memory yes right yes um, and you know, I wonder if this might be a good time to talk about working memory. Actually, yeah, that would yeah, be good. good and the intensity of the recall as well, um, right. just that rate, rhythm, force piece of it. Right. Um, anyways, yeah, let's talk about working memory. Um, because working memory is another one of those terms Buzz that words. people throw around. It's yeah, a, it's, a it's really popular. Um, but in and the thinking about working memory and what it is and, and how it operates has continued to evolve over time right. mm -hmm. um, it used to be this very modular idea where there's a central executive and then there was the you know verbal working memory and mm -hmm. spatial working yeah. memory and um, that's right right, right. but so sensory and motor are separate exactly too right yeah right, right. <laughs> yeah. right. But, so this very modular <laughs> kind of yeah. thing oh, it sounds it on my I know like, right. there's yeah. the sensory cortex the motor oh yeah. um, so, so one of the reasons, you know, so we, we, so can, sassy. we can spend a few moments fangirling about Michael Frank and his work. Yeah, fangirl. Um, um, yep. So we, we love you, Michael. Mm -hmm. um, we love you. So come on so, the podcast. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> so one done. of the things that that I really appreciate about his work, and, and he's not the only one who does it, obviously. There's, but but yeah, he's co-authored mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting articles, and one of them was about. Um, the executive without the homunculus about right. making working mm -hmm. memory work, mm -hmm. and that that uh, if you have more of a sensory motor, um, cortical subcortical view of things, then you don't need a you don't need a central executive. You just right. need to engage with the environment in real time, yeah, mm -hmm. and and operate that way. Mm -hmm. And so, working memory then becomes these um, kind of opposite coordinated forces that are helping to have. Um, maintenance, mm -hmm. right? right? Maintenance, yeah. So there's there's the maintenance piece where you have to have kind of a stable mm -hmm. thing going on there, and then there's the updating piece uh -huh. that allows that stable information to shift mm -hmm. as new information comes in. So then you change, and there are mm -hmm. right, and the basal ganglia are very involved very. in working memory, very, and, and very involved in sort of um, gating what gets in. That's right. And um, and the cerebellum is important in terms of rate, rhythm, and force of information yeah. traces. And so that these things are all operating in tandem and in a very active way. Mm -hmm. So there is really, there's no need for a central executive. And actually, it doesn't make evolutionary sense mm -hmm. that you would need it because it takes too much time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, right. that when you're doing things in real time and you're having to do things quickly, this whole idea of having this, you know, solid representation in mind is, mm -hmm. yeah. it's doesn't, it doesn't hold up in, in real time. It's so, it's interesting because it, I, as you're talking, it, you know, I'm picturing with the homunculus, it's like a, you're kind of a puppet on a string yeah. to a certain extent, as opposed to in this more holistic right. uh, way. Yeah. And, yeah. you know. Um, and this is where, I mean, I, the, this I, this one article I love, like if, whenever I, I teach anything, I say if there's one article you should read, it's the, um, the Sizzik and Kalaska yeah. article on, um, oh, where is it? So it's basically, it's decision making. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, it's basically looking at ethology, looking at function across species. And it's just, it's a beautiful piece. And I'm blanking on the actual name of it. Um, Don't ask me, I'm horrible with names. <laughs> I know, I am like, I can, I can, so it's, um, I can tell you what the front page looks like. Yeah. 
Right. And I, uh, honestly, I tell people to read this article so often, and I've read it so many times, and now I'm blanking on the name. So keep talking. And, oh, yeah, it'll, it is. It'll Neuro, be in our show notes. It's, um, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. What is it called? Um, oh, I just lost it again. Mm. It's just terrible. No, because no. it's a, yeah. Anyway, Sizzik and Kalaska, it's a great... It's a really good article. Um, but, but why is it a good article? Yeah. Neural Mechanisms for Interacting with a World Full of Action Choices. Okay. 2010. Um, Why do you recommend it so highly? Um, because it, it maps out and gives a, gives a description of action selection, mm-hmm. basically. And okay. how, and from a larger systems view, we, living creatures, mm-hmm. benefit from um, previous choices mm-hmm. that were adaptive and um, that were rewarded in some way by, you know, not dying, etc. Right. Um, to then help guide future choices, uh-huh. and then also in real time make adaptations to changes as they come. Uh-huh. And so, operating in a world where you have all of these choices, right? There's uh-huh. action selection, uh-huh. right? What are you going to pay attention to in your environment? Right. When you have a lot of different choices. So, what right. merits your attention? Then, what merits an action and uh-huh. response? Uh-huh. And then many of these things are, they operate far too quickly for conscious, deliberate thought. Right, it right. has to be automatic right, right. for it to be adaptive or you're dead. Right. 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 So, um, and it's just, it's beautifully written. Okay. So, um, so, and, and I highly recommend, Paul Sizik is, is fabulous. His work is really wonderful. So, um, we'll put a link to his website with his papers. And one of the things I like about both Paul Sizik and um, Michael Frank is that they have a really nice... Um, link to all of their work that you can get access to it without having yes. to pay $35 for an article. An article. Yeah. yeah. That's so we'll not lovely. get started on that right now. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, go ahead, I was just sort of thinking about the whole notion of the importance of movement for working memory. That's exactly I what I was going to ask. Yeah. Some, I think some of the best examples I've seen recently are actually kiddos that have what we would call poor working memory mm-hmm. and the strategies that they then enlist to make life easier for them so mm-hmm. and I always laugh because one of the measures of quote-unquote working memory is if I say numbers can you say them backwards right and I know two kiddos in particular who look just fine like if you just looked at their scores on that test their working memory looks awesome but if you looked at how they did it one of the kiddos so I would say you know four one five and he repetitively wrote 415 mm-hmm. on the table, mm-hmm. right? Clearly moving 4154 mm-hmm. four, and kept doing it until he then basically read it off the table 514 backwards. Because he mm-hmm. is so, like, right? Right. And I've seen kids who do that verbally. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. You'll, you'll give them the right. string of numbers and they'll say, talk it And they'll literally go right through it each time until they can do it. And another child I knew who numbered his fingers. Oh, interesting. And and like and then you know four one five and five one four and, and was clearly using movement to do mm-hmm. what a lot of uh-huh. people can quote unquote do in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, so needing sort of that external, mm-hmm. you know, to just I think makes it much more clear that we all do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just if we don't have quote unquote working memory problems, can do it in our head. But we're still doing the same thing. I mean, when I yeah. do it in my yeah. head, I'm writing like I can visualize the mm-hmm. 415, and mm-hmm. then do it backwards, mm-hmm. right? But some people can't do that and have to physically use their fingers. Yeah. Um, you know, then the challenge is these, both these kids had perfectly fine working memory scores. Correct. Right, right. And right. it's like, they're working memory Well, they're fine. Scores. And then it's you like, go to the IEP, no. no, really and they not. say, no, this person's fine. They do not need services. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. Um, 
So, obviously, um, those are but, not good measures so, of working so out. This also They're reminds me of this. Really not good measures of working so out. So ultimately, can no. I ask this question then yeah. from a clinical perspective? So then how do you guys determine, like, you know, if you're assessing a child, how do you determine really what their what their issues are? Or so part of it is the tests aren't giving you really come, the well, data that you, you have. The tests can give you useful information. Yeah. It's just more understanding what the test actually measures and then also coming at things from multiple directions. Right. right. So going so, and observing, do you go and observe in the school? Well, and, or, and for me, or? and this is why I know a lot of my colleagues have, you know, graduate schools, or graduate schools, graduate students do their testing for them. This is why I will never have someone else do my testing for me, because the score tells me nothing. Right. We're yeah. sitting there and watching the child write for one, you know, it's like that's that it. is yeah. significant. That's, see, that's, right. and yes. so in, in that's the, giving you the right, real information. So then in the IEP, when the district says they're fine, I can say, no, they're not, because would you like to know how much time and energy it took them to do that task and if it's taking you that much time and energy you can't pay attention to anything else going on around you right right and that's why when 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 Len and I did the subcortical structures and cognition book one of the reasons we did it was because neuropsychology had become so stale in terms of um, it being static Mm -hmm. right so if you had adaptive problems that didn't involve, um, you know, a bullet in your parietal cortex, right? Sure. Um, that a lot of neuropsychological tests, as they were used, were not, you know, how, how, people would talk about somebody would go in to get a neuropsychological evaluation, come out looking quote unquote fine, and right. get lost on their way to their car, right? Yeah, to going home, right? Oh, right. Right. So, so one of the reasons we did, we did that book was to give neuropsychologists some ways of more actively using the current tests we have mm-hmm. to actually start getting at adaptive function and in a moving way, right? Mm-hmm. And again, if you view movement as central, mm-hmm. then it everything you do can be turned around so that you can actually get at somebody's adaptive function in a, in, in a way that is meaningful and um, has more ecological validity, what we would say, that you can actually use it outside of the office. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and also, I think, being aware of what sort of guidance tests give. Like, right. my pet peeve is the Wisconsin card sorting, and people saying, ah, oh, their executive function is fine, they can do that task. Well, yeah, their executive function is fine if every single move they make, you give them feedback. Right. And knowing whether somebody right. benefits from feedback right. or not, yeah. and the kind of feedback you get from the Wisconsin, important. it's a task I, I like to use, yeah. but I also use it in concert with other things that are less, um, that offer less immediate feedback, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. whether you are giving somebody more or less context. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the, with the Wisconsin card sort as a task mm-hmm. is very interesting in that it's sort of unstructured but structured, right? Right. Like somebody's guessing based on, you know, you're trying to match cards or by color or shape or form, but you don't know that in advance. You're just told to match. And right. then you have to start using the feedback you're given to, to adjust what you're doing, right? So when you make a mistake, it's just that's right or that's, or that's wrong, right? Okay. But not, no, you were supposed to right. use shape, right. you're not, not color. Saying, yeah. You don't do yeah. that, right? Yeah. So then you can see how does somebody benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And you can compare it to another type of task like animal sorting, which is a, a task on the NEPSI where you have a bunch of cards with animals on them and you have to sort them into different grouping based on shared characteristics that you select yourself as opposed mm-hmm. to somebody And right, no one tells you, you right or wrong each time. Right, and nobody tells you right or wrong. You just have to figure it out. And so you have to direct your attention independently to what's important 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have something like the Tower of London, which is mm-hmm. a task I, I really like, where it's moved, it's balls on pegs and mm-hmm. there's different heights and you have to move them around. And you have a model to, to copy, but you can only move one at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> in theory, if you follow um, the rules. If you follow the rules. But a lot of people that, that I see know that they're supposed to move one ball at a time, but they get frustrated and yeah. so they grab two at the same time and move them. Right. Got it. So, so again, the, there'll be a score that comes out of that, mm-hmm. but there'll also be my observations of how they handle frustration in that moment, mm-hmm. whether they yes. can plan ahead, right. and how good they are at using thought to guide behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And because can they slow you know, their behavior down, yeah. or do they rush in and impulsively? Right. And, and that's an executive functioning yeah. issue, right? Oh, this so is what we call metacognition. That's great. Yeah. Right? This is your ability to observe yourself. Right. Right? To, to step back and, mm-hmm. okay. Think so, about your thinking. Think exactly. about yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I guess what's running through my head right now is, yes, I agree. Um, but to kind of go back to the sensory motor piece of it, I'm thinking about the kiddos I see who are non-speaking. Right. So, you know, speaking to these tests, they're not going to be... They're not going to be taking those. They're not, not going to be taking... there to help me. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And so this is where last... last podcast I talked about how I've learned so much from the non-speaking community because I have to go off how they move yes this is how I assess their working memory is based on how they walk and how they move because while I may be able to communicate on some level with these individuals through facilitation or support typing whatever you want to call it alternative communication I'm not going to be able to get necessarily to those nuanced of, of, of issues but I can watch how they move and how they creep or crawl or don't creep or don't crawl to then inform my goals and objectives in the cognitive domain. Well, this brings up a super important point, too, because a lot of the people that you work with, um, some have intellectual impairments, some don't have intellectual right. impairments. But, right. But be, this population has been woefully mistreated Very because young. of not being able to speak. Correct. And the assumption is made... Um, that there are no capabilities right. in this person right. because of that. Right. Yeah. Um, and and also one of the problems, I think, with how people look at um, augmented and facilitated mm-hmm. communication is that they're assuming that um, this person isn't capable right. of that level of It's thought. a lack of competence, yeah. correct. Yes. It, that, there's no way that this person right. could could be right. thinking like this because mm-hmm. they, they aren't talking. So therefore, anything that's coming out of them is really just the person who's assisting them. Right, and it kind of goes to this idea of IQ testing or whatever and having these individuals attempt to participate in that kind of test. Right. If you have severe sensory motor impairment. That's impossible. Exactly, right. but that possible. is what is right. given to right. determine intellectual oh, see, ability. Right. So that to me, see, but, that's very corticocentric, right? But, so that's right. like yes. completely... Correct, I mean, right. but it goes to the idea that we're expect it, it, that why can't we look at this as a movement disorder, right? right? And so it goes back to this idea of we have to look at these issues in sensory motor domain for intellect, for working right. memory, for executive function. Um, so I don't know. I was just right. thinking that as we were talking about no, the non-speaking community, it's especially. A, yeah, right. It's a really good point. And I think, Laura, to sort of, you know, go off of what you said, part of what happens with kiddos that are quote-unquote non-speaking is it's like, oh, we'll just give them non-verbal, you know, tasks yeah. without thinking about... yeah. Because there's a motor piece of it. Mm-hmm. Even if I give you a nonverbal task that requires you to point at a stimulus or to do that's something, right. like that's still motor planning. That's still motor planning. Oh yeah, yeah. I have problems right. accurately pointing. Right. 
And because you point to the wrong place, I don't know if you don't know the answer or you can't point to the right place. Right. And I worked with kids who were speaking but had a lot of communication problems who would literally say one answer and Uh point to another. Right. Right. Classic. Yeah. So then which is the which is the answer they meant? That's right. Right. Or um, another one that a lot of pediatricians use to assess receptive language, which we can yeah. yeah. Um, is uh, put put the I think you talked about it. Put the washcloth on the doll, or who who was that? Maybe it was. Oh, it was a. Okay, I know who did it. Never mind. Yeah. You don't know them. But anyways, um, <laughs> I'll organize my thought here. Okay, um, is put the washcloth on or put the blanket on the doll? Right now, the blanket was a washcloth. Right, right. So they're just sitting there. They're like, there's no blanket here. There's no blanket right. here. Yeah. So after the fact, when we could communicate with him, he's like, there was no blanket. It right. was a washcloth. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So now the pediatrician is going, oh, there's receptive language issues. You need this and this and this because there was no follow through. There was no initiation. There was, right? Oh, and there's this whole gosh. idea that's drawn about it. Right. So I think while we can, I think that this population or this community is a really good way of bridging this idea of, Working memory executive function to sensory motor issues, right. Um, right. not just the people who can talk. Right. right. Well, and this brings up this um, this article that came out just recently in PLOS Computational Biology by mm-hmm. Ann Collins mm-hmm. and Michael Frank. Yep. Um, on uh, basically titled "Motor Demands Constrain Cognitive Role Structures." Yes. Um, and highly, highly recommended. It. It's a really interesting Very. article. Um, and it's basically on, you know, the, the study of executive function focuses on ability to represent cognitive rules independently of stimulus or response modality, right? Mm-hmm. Using that's the, that's the assumption. Right. Um, and one of the things that it gets into is this idea of representation, mm-hmm. right? Do we, uh, executive function is supposed to be based on our ability to represent things in our minds. Right. And one of the things that I find really interesting about sort of radical embodied cognition mm-hmm. as a field is, um... Um, Andrew Wilson and Sabrina um, Galanka are, are the kind of the, the two psych scientists. They're on Twitter. You should follow them. We'll put them in the show notes. They're mm-hmm. great. Um, but they are sort of radical embodied cognitive scientists, basically, who believe you don't need to have representations. You you know, does does a spider know it's moving? Right. You right. know, so... so uh, and I'm sort of agnostic on the whole, you know, mm-hmm. representations versus no representations. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's possible that there's sort of both, so mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do think it's important to think about how um, movements and motor demands are going to then constrain cognitive yes issues, yes. right? And um, so so I highly recommend reading the the article. It's very interesting. And um, again, thinking about it, if we make our views of cognitive function more embodied, more within our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that then the, the kinds of interventions that we do um, are going to be improved by that, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, um, with a lot of this computer-based look stuff mm-hmm. with executive function, I use, I use the task of executive control, which is a, a great set of tasks that sort of have you know increasing and decreasing working memory demands with also increasing and decreasing um, inhibition demands where you're basically pressing buttons to put things into boxes okay. and for the little kids it's basically like helping Maria clean her room right and you know Maria has some really weird stuff in her room she's got zebras and Fred <laughs> and you know 
So, but it's entertaining for the kids because, right. like, ew, what is this weird stuff that Marina has in her room? Um, but but it's, a, it's an interesting test and it's computer based, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, but it's not the only thing I use, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind when we're looking at executive function and measuring executive function. There are, there are computerized things that we can do that are useful, but then we have to think about how they generalize. Like right. there was a, a study that just came out recently, um, a very long-term study looking at um, Cogmen in particular, and these computerized working memory training things are really not shown to do much over mm-hmm. over long term. And I can't. I will try. I'll put it in the show notes. I can't remember the name of the article. It literally came out in the past month. Um, it was a long term study looking at these kind of um, highly focused working memory training mm-hmm. interventions. Um, they just tend not to generalize, mm-hmm. and that shouldn't surprise yeah. anybody. Cogmed makes you good at Cogmed. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, I actually did Cogmed because I yeah. wanted to see what it would. Yeah, I my mean, son did I Cogmed. Got, I got my sons. Yeah, I, I got nothing. Yeah, got no, like you know, there was no. But school districts um, purchase oh, Cogmed yeah. as because executive functions is right. you know this is now the big buzzword, right. and especially in education, right? And, and everybody so they, wants a quick fix. So this, they to, it's a to quick make your executive function thing. better, as opposed to coming from a radical embodied cognition perspective, a motor perspective, a, a whole contextual, whole body, a larger independent adaptive function it, perspective. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, and part of it is not you know, and obviously this is my bias, but not wanting to take the time to think about what is going to be specifically helpful for this individual. Right. Yeah. Right? So work with a lot of parents and a lot of school districts who, you know, start with, okay, my kid needs a checklist on the bathroom mirror. And let's do CogMed so he doesn't need the checklist on the bathroom mirror. Rather than like, how about he just needs the checklist yeah. on the bathroom right. mirror and like get over it. Well, like, and also that's a tool yeah, that right. that child can use right. for, you know, I mean, not specifically that tool, but, you know, if there are problems later on in life, right, right whatever, right. you're just, you know how to manage right, yourself. Right. That's part of the whole point, too, is trying to, is understanding how you well, work, And this is right? the question about how, how families to... can help with executive function. Absolutely. And also this notion, people have talked about hot and cool executive function and um, what are the other terms that people have used for it? Uh, neutral valence. Neutral valence. So, but drives but, me crazy. What, but what it comes down to a lot of times is that with with a with a highly corticocentric view of, of executive function and training adapted skills, it's all very content based and very top down. However, um, arousal is so mm-hmm. important, right? So yes. the, your um, your arousal level and your um, startle response and how mm-hmm. quickly you can adapt to novelty and how mm-hmm. quickly you can make things automatic those things are all extremely important yep. and so um you can train all the skills in the world but if you um enter a fight flight state every right. time something startles you that is going to disrupt all of the top-down stuff and it's not yep. going you're not going to be able to use it so that's exactly so right. executive in my view training executive function is in part reliant on Helping somebody manage their arousal levels so that they're not in flight, fight, flight constantly, yes. and so they're not startled constantly That's by right. new things. And That's right. so the 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 piece of executive function that keeps getting left out that has to do with arousal to me is one of the reasons why so many interventions that are supposed to be training quote unquote executive function skills fail. Yeah, that's right. And I was just thinking in in terms of the arousal state. Um, if if it's if you're in a in a let's say regulated state in your therapist's office, 
Mm-hmm. And okay, and so now we're going to be addressing things because we are able to get the wheels going here. We've got a good synchronization going on in the right. engagement. Let's talk about what triggered you and to get right. you upset last right, time. Right, right. But then that ha- Then now this individual goes home. Okay, and there's a whole new set of relationships at home that may not mirror what happens in the right. therapy room. Right. Yeah. So it's about <laughs> that. It gets to this idea of this. Sort of, okay, we're looking at the brain as a full system, right? Embodied cognition, the brain, body, all of this information working in concert together. Now, we can take that same idea and apply it to the family system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how we can support not only the individual, but how we can support the family to address these issues at home. Because as you're stating, if they're dysregulated at home, Mm -hmm. this is not going to be a good carrier. Right, right, right. Right, and also, um, in, in, in terms of generalizability mm-hmm. so if you're if you learn a set of of expectations and responses in one setting right yeah. you you develop those expectations and you go into a different setting and it's different you're not necessarily going to have that that generalization and carry over right. in part because of the the you know internal models right right so there's not um there's there's not a broad enough array uh-huh. of, of choices uh-huh. to respond right. with. And so one of the things I, I like about things like neurologic music therapy and um, more physiological-based kinds of interventions is they also can occur in multiple locations mm-hmm. and can um, give somebody a wider repertoire of of responses and mm-hmm. can also work with familial expectations, right? right? Because we don't operate in a vacuum. That's and right. so one of the things that can happen is that a child can engage in a behavior and a parent has an interpretation of what that behavior means mm-hmm. that may or may not correspond yeah. to what it actually means for the child. <laughs> right. You know? I do know. Yes. <laughs> and All too well. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so... This also points to some of the, the vulnerabilities in all of the behavior-based things, whether it's ABA or whether it's DIR floor time, mm-hmm. that, that all of these models have sort of unspoken expectations about what's important. Right. So um, sort of the radical behavioral ABA model is that, well, you know, intent doesn't matter, right? It's just the behavior, except for the person who's training the behavior has very clear ideas about what the behavior means right. themselves, right. right? That they're going to then reward or not reward or punish or whatever, Correct. right? But the behavior, the behavior, the meaning of the behavior doesn't matter, supposedly, right? Except for the person uh-huh. who's rewarding or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- with some of the floor time models, it's all about relationships, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes people get dysregulated in their relationships right. yeah and right. so right. there isn't also some ways to constrain correct behavior and expectations right so right. The, so those sound like very extremes they're very black and right. white therapies essentially as opposed well, to and they I, can be taken in extremes yeah they can aspects yeah. of them are can be extremely helpful yes. depending on well, the, how they're but used. that's what i'm saying is yeah. that it's it's much more of a you know you're I would I would think that you're more likely going to take something from each, mm-hmm. and it's much more. That's I mean, the hope. That's human the hope. interaction is much more nuanced, right? right? It's, You'd hope. it's 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 not um, it's not always black and white. But I think I mean obviously, but but we have to. 
I think in my in my therapeutic training, I was trained as a systems family specialist, mm-hmm. right? So we always, you know, it wasn't about you bring your child to me, and then I'm going to be the mechanic who fix, fixes right. your Drop child. Drop them off, go and go get your coffee, and then come back. And because them up and also, you yeah. know, sometimes too, what happens is a child is exhibiting symptoms that, that really you know, another part of the system really needs to be worked with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the identified patient that needs to be worked with. But yeah. Um, but that's also, case, again, if you take a sensory motor view of mm-hmm. things and you understand that everybody's adapting to their environments right. and creating expectations for their environments, that happens in families. Families oh, are yeah. environments and people that's right. have expectations of themselves and each other, most of them not conscious, right? Uh-huh. And, right. and so, again, talking about expectations and executive function, um, you know, we, we all tend to see a lot of kids on the spectrum who have meltdowns, mm-hmm. and and one of the things I talk about with parents a lot of times is that and I know Jamie, you do this too, is that well, one of the things that can cause a meltdown is when things don't go as a person expects. That's right. Yes. And the problem is a lot of times our expectations are not conscious. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we don't Completely. even know. That's right. We don't yeah. even know exactly. what we were expecting. We just yeah. know this is not it. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. Not feeling good. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, this, this is, is not what I wanted. This right, is it. And I don't know what I wanted. This was not it. Right. <laughs> so, so the match between expectation and and reality is part of is in a huge portion of executive function, right? And how we manage when something does not meet our expectations. Yes. Right. And that has a big part to do with arousal. Yep. So here we are, back to vertically organized brain. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, it all roads lead there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. For me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we, what time is it? We we're, are, we're, 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 about, we're about our time. Yeah. So, um, so we should be wrapping it up. Um, well, hopefully that laid a good... A good well, and well, it's, it's an important topic, and it's one that we'll return to repeatedly, mm-hmm. I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we can... We can spend hours talking about the educational impact mm-hmm. of, of yeah, this and, kind of way and, of thinking, too. And um, strategies for helping you right. know, kids and parents for improving executive function. Yeah, um, I think that would be a good idea. Because yeah. I think I think that, you know, um, clinicians and other, you know, psychologists, neuropsychologists who listen to this are interested in the science piece. Lay people are interested in that, too, but I think they're interested in... What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So we got these problems. How are we going to do it? Right. What what do I do? Right. What can you do? You know, how do we organize education to look, you know, um, so that... And how do we we improve somebody's frustration tolerance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, we can teach somebody tools and, and, you know... You can breathe. You can, you know, count ten. But, yeah. but again, yeah. for, for me, ventilate. yeah, for me, that's but again, breathing that's is not motor, of, guys. Didn't you know? That, no. Um, so, but so yeah, again, not, not so sure how your lungs. Looking move, at basic right. tell, tell a non-speaking person to breathe. Yeah. Just breathe, okay? Right. Yeah. Consciously think about it. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, that's my soapbox. Um, I'll speak. Um, oh, by the way, how, how's the log, boss? We haven't checked Speaking in. Speaking of sensory motor, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're just... So Sean Vanneman says that, you know... The, he the, believes in me. He believes in you, and the log boss is... It's a toughie. Yeah, it, it's a toughie. well, it's a toughie. And, and it would and require... I know offered you a mouse. I know, all and, right. And was concerned you would be upset that it was wired and not... <laughs> <laughs> no, I would not. And um, let's just, yeah, we'll just... The log boss is awaiting my... Destruction. That's it. You you will That's conquer good. that log. You will boss. conquer the log boss. And, I will. And Jamie and I moved our offices across town to a lovely new, to a lovely new space. Gorgeous. No one died. 
Well, no one died. We didn't kill each other or anyone else in the process. Yeah, and it could have happened. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, <laughs> there seems yeah. to be some debate about yeah, that. Yeah, Jamie but, still yeah. has to have a chat with somebody on Monday. So ask mm-hmm. ask again next oh. time if anybody died. <laughs> yeah, but we, you know, we still we we went. You did it. We we yeah. It was. It's a great space. It, it is. is. It's, it's gonna. Space. It's great. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, quite and what's new with you, Laura? With me, mm-hmm. I just got back from Australia. Well, that's Yay! right. You yeah. were talking. You were doing down under. I did story thing. Right. Yeah. Did an early childhood conference there and talked about creativity for a keynote and then sort of did an overall Montessori one hundred and one where I'm introducing people to this vertical uh, model of the brain. Uh, and we ta- and you're doing goddesses work. Yeah, I'm <laughs> goddesses. That's good. I gotta do that one yeah. now. I gotta say the Lord, but yeah, yeah. Lordus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Lordus. You're doing, you're doing the Lordus's work. <laughs> Sorry, doesn't work. Focus, Peggy. Go, Laura. Go. Keep going. I don't know. I'm still jet lagged, so that's all I got for right now. Oh. <laughs> lucky, lucky. Did you see any giant venomous creatures while you were there? No, no, I didn't. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I've been to Australia several times now, and I, I don't get to see much of the country itself. I see a lot of the inside of hotels, but we were in Brisbane, and so I did get to go out, you know, by their little waterfront area and stuff, and. It, it's really nice. It's Gorgeous. a very nice city. Yeah. Gorgeous. Got to see a school there that was really beautiful. And um, and then I flew down to Melbourne and, and uh, spoke at, a, at Plenty Valley mm-hmm. down there to their parent community. Had about 80 people come, which was great. Wow. So, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And it's really sad because I think a lot of parents are just so, you know, they get a lot of flack for putting their kids in Montessori. They were talking about afterwards. It was I. I felt like we had a, a really nice group therapy session after the talk with the parents. Oh, yeah. They get then, and some people said that that people, their relatives, get angry that they've put their children in Montessori, which is so that. because they don't understand what it is. Yeah. They just and it's yeah. threatening because most of us went through conventional education. Right. So right. and we understand and we're all fine. We so why should you have something siloed thinking like of you know. Yeah. It, very, you know, discrete subjects, and, and yeah. we understand tests, and we understand grades, and we don't understand this whole, um, you know, systemic, holistic environment of education, which is so in alignment with what everything we talked about today. Yeah. But, you know, well, we'll hopefully we'll get there. there. Yeah, we'll have to, again, we need to have more episodes, I think, specifically on educational issues and mm-hmm. learning issues, because I think, you know, and actually somebody, a, a listener had asked if we would do an episode on um, neuromyths at a certain point. Oh, yeah. And really, oh, yeah. And really we talk about them in depth because yeah. we do, you know, we mention them and laugh, um, but <laughs> um, but we don't really go into, you know, what, what current neuromyths are right. and why. why? And, yeah. um, and and it's not that people are believe them because they're stupid or by any means, right. it's, you it's, know, but they're so commonplace. This is how... They're portrayed well, in the media. It's how the brain yeah. is portrayed in the media in this right. very overly simplistic way. Yeah. And unfortunately, parents and educators end up believing oh, yes. these yeah. neuromyths. Right. Well, and and there are some real consequences. There are some real yes. damaging yeah. consequences of, of buying into some of these myths about people and brains. And yeah. um, so I think we'll 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 do a we'll do a neuromyths yeah. episode that would be good. coming up. Yeah, yeah. So that'd be really good. Okay, so um, so thanks for joining us. Um, I'm not going to go around the table to say how everybody can, you know, Don't. find you on Twitter, Peggy. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> so, I thought I was going to get out of this one. Um, Laura? Laura. Uh, L, um, let's see, I'm at L. Flora Shaw. Yeah. yeah. At, she's, she's on Twitter. Or at White Paper Press. That's yeah. the other one. And White Paper mm-hmm. Press. Check it out. Some good stuff there. Um, I'm at Nebula63. 
I'm at Jamie B. PhD. And um, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.